0: Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be picking up in verse 22 today. Matthew 14, verse 22. Last time, we looked at the amazing miracle that Jesus performed of feeding thousands of people with just five small loaves of bread and a couple of small fish. We noted, though, that as amazing as the miracle itself was... The greater truth for us to see in that miracle is who Jesus is, that He is the bread of God who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's the bread of life. Jesus, see, He didn't do these miracles just to show off or something. He's seeking to teach us something through them. And the miracle of feeding thousands of people is followed up in our study today with another incredible miracle. Jesus is going to walk on water. And not calm water on a beautiful sunny day, but at night in the middle of rough and tossing seas. This miracle, though, is not a demonstration of Jesus' amazing barefooting skills. It teaches us who Jesus is. He is the Lord over all of the creation. He has the power to tame and to bring it all under His control to serve His purpose and His will. He shows us, too, that we can trust Him in the middle of of the most frightening of situations in our life. He is faithful even when we falter and waver in our own faith and trust in Him. So let's flip over to Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowd. After He had dismissed them, He went up on a mountainside by Himself to pray. So following the miracle of feeding the thousands of people, Jesus, he sends the disciples on ahead to the other side of the lake. Jesus then finds a quiet place up on the mountainside to pray. And as I've mentioned before, what they call mountains are what we consider hills. So it's up on a hillside. There are no mountains in that area as you and I think about mountains. They're hills. Hills. But good enough. It's a semantic thing, isn't it? The example of Jesus praying reminds us of our own need for prayer, though. And the first thing I want us to take note of here is Jesus finds a quiet place to pray. Now, depending on the situation, the circumstances, that's not always possible for us, is it? And depending on the kind of praying that we are doing, that may not even make sense. But when we are trying to engage in a concentrated time of prayer, we need to find a quiet, distraction-free place. And as hard as it might be for some of you to hear this, that means no phone. I know it may trigger some withdrawal reflexes from you, but if you can put your phone out of sight and out of hearing, it will be very helpful For the quality of your prayer time. And these days, that's the one distraction that just eats away at everything in our life, isn't it? Well, Corey Ten Boom asked the question, Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? She was making the point that our prayer life should not be made up mostly of emergency calls. To the Lord, asking Him to help us out of trouble, like He's the spare tire we use when we get a flat. Instead, we should be seeking the Lord all of the time in prayer to get guidance and direction and wisdom for our life. Prayer should be like a steering wheel by which we are being steered by the Lord through life. We want to have the Lord involved in our life moment by moment, and we do that through prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, you'll remember, says, pray continually. Pray continually. 23, the second part of that verse says, Later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So that night the disciples are out in the middle of the lake struggling rowing against the strong wind. In verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. The matter of fact way that Matthew says this, I think is funny. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Like he's just taking a stroll through the park. Like this is the most normal thing that we can imagine him doing. He walked out to them on the lake. Well, in reality, this is an astonishing display of the creator of the universe showing his power and control over all things that he's made. How did Jesus do it? We don't know. There are insects, you know, water skippers, who do a similar kind of thing all the time. In fact, one of the nicknames of these little insects is Jesus bugs because of their ability to walk on water. Jesus made these insects, and He gave them that ability. The Lord made the waters of the Red Sea stand up like a wall so His people could pass through to safety. He can certainly walk on the water as though it is solid ground if He chooses to. 26 says, When the disciples saw Him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I'm reminded here of how we can mistakenly identify things in our life like this too. We are in the middle of a storm of some kind in our life and we suddenly see what appears to be something even worse, a ghost, a sea monster ready to capsize us once and for all and then The voice of the Lord speaks to us. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. What we think is something worse might actually be the Lord coming to help us. And that's been true before, hasn't it? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning, and beginning to sink, he cried out, "'Lord, save me!' Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. "'You have little faith,' he said. Why did you doubt?' So Peter, always the one to step forward and say and do what they are all thinking, he asked Jesus to enable him to do what Jesus is doing and to come to him, on the water and Peter he starts out really well doing good but when he sees the wind he's afraid and he begins to sink and he cries out Lord save me and Jesus reaches out and he catches Peter you have little faith why did you doubt when Peter takes his focus off of Jesus and he looks at the storm instead he gets shaky and he begins sinking and it's the same for us too, isn't it? As long as our focus stays on Jesus, we do well. But when we let our attention be drawn to the storm raging around us, we begin to falter and sink. Some are critical of Peter because of his faltering faith here, but I want to remind us of a couple of things. First, Peter demonstrates a tremendous amount of faith to trust the Lord enough to step out of the boat and come toward him. I don't know how many others then or now would have done the same. This is a pretty big thinking outside of the box type of moment I would consider. Second, although Peter's faith falters when he lets his focus get drawn to the storm rather than staying on Jesus, I want us to notice who Peter cries out to for help. Jesus. He definitely still has his faith firmly planted in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of his faltering and his sinking. And I want to encourage you, who are a follower of Jesus, we're very much like Peter, aren't we? We love the Lord, we trust Him with our life, and sometimes we're as bold as a lion. But there are also times when the storms in our life, they frighten us and we start sinking. But who do we instinctively cry out to, even in that moment? Just like Peter, we cry, Lord, save me! And who is our faith in? Who are we looking to as our rescuer? Who are we depending on for help? It's the Lord. Our faith may falter, but it's still in the Lord. And I want to encourage you with that. Be encouraged, brother and sister. Our faith may be little, but it's still in the right one who's always faithful. So we have two lessons that we can learn from Peter in this story. First, we learn the importance of keeping our focus on the Lord, no matter what the storm is doing around us. And second, we learn that the Lord remains faithful. He's our faithful one, even when we are faithless he keeps us safe in the storm even when we're sinking he grabs hold of us and he lifts us up to safety if his faithfulness to us depends on our faith in him then we are in big trouble he remains faithful even when we're faithless he remains faithful even when we are afraid And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the second time that we have read about the disciples being in a storm on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. You might remember the first time was back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. That time Jesus was with them and he was sleeping. When a terrible storm suddenly came upon them, remember? Threatening to sink their boat. And they woke Jesus up, terrified that they were all going to drown. And Jesus, he spoke to the storm and immediately everything became calm. And the disciples were amazed and they asked each other, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And now this second time, the disciples are alone in a boat, fighting their way across the lake against this strong wind, when Jesus comes walking on the water to them. And when He climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down. This time the disciples, they worship Him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. The disciples, they've moved from this fearful amazement, wondering who this man is to worshiping Jesus, believing He's the Son of God. They're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is, and this understanding will continue to grow throughout this story as we progress through the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 34 says, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to Him and begged Him to let the sick just touched the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So, we're given another picture of this profound ministry that Jesus has among the people in the town of Gennesaret where they come ashore. As soon as people recognize Jesus, word quickly spreads, and crowds of people gather, bringing their sick to be healed. And even those who just touch his garment, are healed. Now this next story begins in chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law come, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. A delegation of fact Finding religious authorities from the main headquarters in Jerusalem have come to Galilee to look into the activities of this so called prophet and miracle worker named Jesus. And they are shocked by what they discover. Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Now, the issue is not about the disciples practicing bad personal hygiene. The issue is about ceremonial religious observance. Mark includes a parenthetical statement in his telling of this story to help explain what these religious leaders are taking issue with. In Mark chapter 7, verse 3, he says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. The key word here is tradition. These various things that they were doing, they're not things that were specified in the law that God had given them through Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament of our Bible, these things were just traditions, beliefs and customs passed down through generations. There was a great mass of teachings by the great rabbis of the Jews referred to as the traditions of the elders that all good Jews followed and observed. And the purpose of these traditions was to provide guidance and direction for every detail and situation in life. The traditions had originally been developed with this intent of helping people not break the actual commandments of God. But over time, as these traditions were passed down from generation to generation, they began to take on a life of their own. They were no longer seen as just good advice but as commandments themselves, equal to the real commandments of God. And there were so many of these traditions with tremendous amounts of detail and process involved that this system that the people were expected to live under, it became unbearable, and this gross misrepresentation of God. Here's an example of the hand-washing procedure that some of the Jews were practicing at that time, and this is quoted from Barclay's commentary. It says, before every meal and between each of the courses, the hands had to be washed, and they had to be washed in a certain way. The hands, to begin with, had to be free of any coatings of sand or mortar or gravel or any such substance. The water for washing had to be kept in special large stone jars so that Itself was clean in a ceremonial sense. And so that it might be certain that it had been used for no other purpose and that nothing had fallen into it or had been mixed with it. So first, the hands were held with fingertips pointing upwards. Water was poured over them and had to run at least down to the wrist. The minimum amount of water was One quarter of a log, which is equal to one and a half eggshells full of water. While the hands were still wet, each hand had to be cleansed with the fist of the other. The fist of one hand was rubbed into the palm and against the surface of the other. This meant, though, that at this stage the hands were wet with water, but that water was now unclean because it had touched unclean hands. So next the hands had to be held with fingertips pointing downward and water had to be poured over them in such a way that it began at the wrist and ran off at the fingertips. After all of that was done then they were considered to be clean. That's not in the Bible. That is a tradition. You're going, There's nothing wrong with traditions. In fact, some traditions can be very good and beneficial, can't they? I mean, traditions can provide something to refer back to for help in making decisions in, about things. I mean, how we handled this situation in the past. Traditions can serve as reminders. Christmas and Easter, for example, remind us of the birth and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Traditions can be a checks and balance system for church doctrine and the understanding of the Bible. How have Christians for the past 2,000 years interpreted and understood and applied a particular scripture? Traditions can give us an anchor to the past that can be comforting and reassuring. As Tevier in the musical Fiddler on the Roof said, without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. But traditions should be a good thing, not a heavy burden weighing us down. So In verse 3, Jesus replied to their question, their concern about the disciples not washing their hands before they eat and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition Woo. that's a little bit confrontational for god said honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. So to this question that's asked Jesus about why his disciples aren't observing the traditions of the elders, he responds by confronting their hypocrisy. He asks them why they break the commands of God for the sake of their traditions. And he cites an example here of how they have used their traditions to nullify and to set aside the commandment of God. Honor your father and mother is the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And implicit within this commandment to honor our parents is the command to obey them and to take care of them in their old age. But by following a tradition of devoting one's service and possessions to God, a person could get around this commandment to honor and care for their parents. That which should have been used to care for your parents could be kept for yourself by simply declaring it korban, a gift devoted to God. Declaring something korban, it didn't require you to actually give it to the temple, though, preventing you from using it and taking advantage of it. It just legally protected it from others, including your parents. It worked kind of like a living trust in our own day, in the sense that a trust has all of your stuff in it, but you still get to use it all. And with Corban, it was like you were put all your stuff into a living trust in the name of God. And you still get to use it all. You had the appearance of being very devoted to God because you have declared all of your possessions, Korban, their gods. You've given it all to him, but you still had full use of it all and were under no obligation then to share any of it with anyone else. Jesus in verse 7 says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus calls them hypocrites. The word translated hypocrite, it literally means actor. What does an actor do? An actor pretends to be someone else. Another term that carries this same idea is two-faced. Someone who is two-faced is someone who's being two different people at the same time. A hypocrite is a counterfeit, a pretender, an actor. And here hypocrite refers to people whose devotion to God is an outward act rather than from the heart. Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah what God says about these kinds of people. He says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It says they worship me in vain. Their worship has no value. It's empty. It's a fake. It's accomplishing nothing. It's useless, both to the one doing it and to the one it's being offered to. Their teachings are merely human rules. The the stuff that they're teaching and the stuff that they're doing, it's just made up by themselves and others like them. It didn't come from God. God doesn't expect us to do all of this weird stuff. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. So Jesus teaches what really defiles a person, what really makes them unclean, impure, unacceptable to God. Nothing outside of a person going into them defiles them, he says. Food, for example, it doesn't make someone unclean sinful, wicked, unacceptable to God, even if the food is eaten with unwashed hands or the food is not considered kosher. What really defiles a person is what comes out of them, what comes out of their mouth. What a person thinks and says and does is what makes them unclean, impure, defiled in God's eyes. Verse 12 says, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So a word is passed along to the disciples who then pass it along to Jesus that the religious leaders are very angry about what Jesus has said. And how does Jesus respond? He says there's some of the weeds that Jesus mentioned in his parable back in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He calls them blind guides who lead themselves and others who follow them into a pit. Jesus says, leave them. Like in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, he tells them to let God deal with them. Jesus' primary mission is to plant good seed, not chase down weeds. If he allowed himself to get dragged into a tit-for-tat argument with these guys, it would be pointless. They are not going to change their minds. It would just waste valuable time and energy and prevent him from carrying out his true mission. And we can learn a useful lesson from Jesus in this, I think. Let's spend our time and energy planting good seed and staying on the main mission the Lord has called us to rather than being critics and busybodies and sin finders and judges of others. Jesus is the one that we want to be pointing people to as the answer. We are just beggars who have found bread and we are letting other beggars know where they can find bread too. Peter said, explain the parable to us. What Jesus has said is is so contrary to the way that virtually everyone thought that even his own disciples, they can't believe that he means what he has said. You and I, as we read this, we think, what's the deal? try to fold in all of these traditions that they have all grown up with. And Jesus has just tipped all of that over. So they ask him here to explain the parable to them. This must be a parable, right, Jesus? You don't really mean what you just said. This isn't a parable. This isn't a riddle. There are no hidden meanings to what Jesus has said. Verse 16, Are you still so dull? Jesus asks them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus explains that the reason nothing outside a person can defile them is because it enters the stomach rather than the heart. And this term heart, as it's used here, it's the center of our personality and thought. It's our inner self which determines our actions, and our attitudes. Our heart is the essence of us. It's who we are. The heart is what God is really interested in. Do you remember the scripture that Jesus quoted from Isaiah 29, 13 a little bit ago in verse 8? He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus explains that the real source of defilement is what comes out of our heart. Out of our heart comes the evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, and such things. It's not a comprehensive list. The, The list is a lot longer, isn't it? And so it is our heart that needs to be changed. We need a new character, a new nature, a new heart. And it's a new heart that we're promised to receive when we come to Jesus as Savior. We're born again by the Spirit of God, receiving a new life. When we come to Jesus and we're born again, are we immediately changed into a new person who lives this beautiful, holy life, perfectly imitating Jesus? Yes and no. Yes, we are a new person. But no, our actions don't always match our new self, do they? Our old nature, although dead and dying, continues to put up a fight. And it's dragging us back into those old patterns of thinking and living all of the time. We're given a new heart, a new nature, a new life, which desires and seeks to be just like Jesus... And as we follow the Lord in His ways, we become more and more like Him. And we have the promise of completed transformation on the other side of this life. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, Being confident of this, being absolutely certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's close with prayer at that point. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of all creation and that it's all under your control. We thank you that we can trust you even in the middle of the storm when we are freaking out and we are sinking, Lord, We thank you that it's your strong, faithful hand that reaches down and takes us up and lifts us to safety. We thank you for that promise, Lord. And we thank you for the new heart that you give us in Jesus Christ. I pray that this new life will continue to grow and flourish in us. As we walk with you, Lord, as we obey you and put your word into practice in our life, I pray that you would encourage your people today. Remind them of your goodness and your faithfulness, that you are going to complete the good work you've started in us. In Jesus' name, amen.